Wow. I am so excited to be here at Compass and with you this morning. Uh, I am uh, I'm 63 years old. That, that's just necessary in order for historical context to play in. I'm, I was born during the Eisenhower administration. When I was a child, if a church had a playground, it was like a bag swing and a seesaw that left you with splinters. <laughs> to look out at this, it's just a recognition of the fact that uh, there's, just, there's just something going on here, right here at Compass Bible Church. This is really precious. Can I bring you that word from just a friend from outside? I'm just so excited to see what you guys have done and what the Lord is, is holding up before you as plans. I just want to tell you, I hope you feel the excitement here. And yes, man, wow. Makes me want to be six again just to go play on that playground. And I just want to bring you word of appreciation, what the Lord is doing here with Compass Bible Institute and just with the entirety of this and your church planting and, uh, and what you're, you just give us great, great hope. And uh, I just want to tell you what an encouragement you are to me and what a dear friend to me your pastor is. Mike Fabares is, uh, you know this, he's a singular gift, not only to this church, but to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm just very, very thankful for him. Yeah. I'm particularly glad that my wife, Mary, is here with me uh, today, and uh, we, we just are very, very glad, very, very glad to be here with you. All right. What could be the most important question we could ask today? What could be the most important thing we might think about today? I want to start out with a word to you from uh, a name you may, you may remember, some of you may, A.W. Tozer very famous pastor of the 20th century. He reached a lot of people. And he had a way with words. And one of the most important things he said was this, whatever comes first to your mind when you hear the word God is the most important thing about you. Now, just think about that. Because once you think about it, you realize you can't refute it. What comes first to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Or you might just turn it around. Let's just do that for a moment. Our task as Christians is at least most fundamentally to know and to bear accurate witness to the one true and living God. That, that's our task. If we get anything wrong there, everything's wrong thereafter. If we get God wrong, we're going to get the gospel wrong. If we misunderstand God, Everything we understand about the world is going to be wrong. Everything's going to be off kilter. And in the clash of worldviews we see in the society around us right now, not to mention in the larger world, at least a part of what we need to understand is what's most fundamental, and that is where the disagreements lie, you trace everything back. It's going to have to do with whether or not the worldview begins with the existence of the God of the Bible. Everything else is simply going to flow. Now, one of the truths about God is that he is infinite, and he's infinitely perfect, and we are mere finite human beings, and we have to use words. God made us linguistic creatures, okay? He gave us the ability to talk. That's a part of what it means. Just understand this. That's a part of what it means to be in God's image. 
You know, you see, I, we love zoos. We all love zoos, right? We love zoos. And, and if you don't love zoos, you love YouTube videos of baby animals. You love, you know. In other words, animals call out to us, don't they? They, they call out to us. And, and we see God's glory in the animals. But you know what? Those animals don't hold worship services. They're made, in God's, they're made by God's creation, but they're not made in God's image. And a part of what makes them different than us is that they do not have the ability to know God and then to linguistically put that into words. In fact, one of the fun things about cartoons is we try to put words in the mouths of animals who actually don't know any of the words. I was actually talking to an expert on dogs just a couple years ago. And I mean an expert on dogs, I mean an academic expert on dogs, which may mean he can't help you with your dog, but the dogness of the dog he can define. And he said one of the most important things is, he says, to understand how dogs train humans. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, humans think that they understand words. They don't understand words, they understand sounds. And you may have absolutely no idea of exactly what they attach to the sound, but as long as it works for you, you're, you go with it. And that's just different. We have words. God speaks to us in his word. We are given the holy scriptures, and we are made in God's image. We are capable consciously of knowing him and of knowing about him. But, you know, one of the old hymns asked the right question. What language shall I borrow? How are we going to talk about God? Well, here's the fact. This is just to be very quick. The only reason we can talk accurately about God, the only way we can talk about God in a way that glorifies him is because he has given us the words in Scripture by which we are to know him. Now, he's greater than every one of these words. Every one of these words is finite, and he is infinite. But we have to use these words because we are word people, and that's all we've got. In fact, as, as a matter of fact, you could put it this way. God loves us so much that he revealed himself to us even in words so that with even words we might know him. So we have to pattern our words rightly, right? So in other words, that is theology. That's the knowledge of God. That's, that, that's, that's what you see in the Bible and in the, in, in the, in the difference between the worship of God and the worship of an idol, between Christianity and other belief systems. We are disciplined by the right words by which we speak of God. And the most important words are the words that God revealed about himself. And one of the most important words God revealed about himself is his sovereignty. Now, wait just a minute. Let me just say something that we've got to think about here. We are in the United States of America. And the United States of America is singular in world history, at least in terms of its breadth and effect, in trying to establish the sovereignty of the nation by the consent of the governed, which is to say, we don't have a king. We just don't. But almost every other civilization throughout human history, you think of sovereignty, well, they had a coin, and it's got a king stamp on it, or, or the image, or, or a queen. And, and, and you, had, you had everything done in the, in the monarch's name, and the monarch is the, the head of state. So when you talk about a king, you talk about sovereignty, you say, well, that's sovereignty. A little, a little more difficult for Americans to understand. But it's easy if we just think in these terms. God's sovereignty is God's rule. 
What it means to refer to God's sovereignty is the fact that he is the ultimate ruler, and we understand that he's the ultimate ruler over all things because he created all things, and in him all things hold together. God's sovereignty is his rule. Okay, so then we step back and we say, how do we have models of understanding that? And you'd say, well, an earthly king. An earthly king would be at least a picture of what it means infinitely greater for God to be king. So maybe we just need to see how this works. When we're thinking about the sovereignty of God, rather than thinking about some kind of mere abstraction Even understanding that maybe the way we understand God as sovereign is at least by comparison with the limited sovereignty of an earthly king, maybe we better look to one. And and so let me just say, I want to have a little fun this morning. We're going to turn in Scripture to a passage that you may know, but you may not know very well. If we're going to ask testimony of what it means for God to be sovereign, why don't we ask a pagan king? That might be an interesting place to start. Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, as we shall see, has a great deal to do with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is not the king of Israel. He's the king of Babylon. And he is not Jewish. He's not He's not a believer in the God of Israel, but you'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar, being the most powerful monarch of the age and the most powerful monarch of the Babylonian Empire, he had sent his armies against Judea, against the children of God. He had sent them against Jerusalem, which he had sacked and largely destroyed. He had taken from Jerusalem the cream of the crop of the young men, the Jewish young men of Israel. He had taken them captives back to Babylon, the city that he had helped to build to its greatness. He had incorporated them by force into his household. And you'll recall that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by dreams. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and he did not know the meaning of these dreams. And and he turned to the only source who could explain these dreams to him, and that was Daniel. So this is, you remember Daniel, this is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. You remember Daniel taken captive along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and other noble Faithful, God-fearing, God-serving young Jewish boys. When Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, when the king, like the king of Babylon, is troubled, everybody's troubled. He needs the interpretation of this dream. This is the second dream found in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is brought before him, and he explains the dream. And I want us to look at, in the beginning, how Daniel interprets the dream. Just for the sake of time, We're going to begin in verse 24. This is the middle of the passage. This is what Daniel says. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. Now stop for a minute. Stop for a minute. Now notice what Daniel's doing. Daniel here is God's servant. He is acting under the sovereignty and by the authority of God. He is inspired in what he is saying. Daniel's being used of God to deliver a message. And notice how this begins. The the language here is important. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King. So Nebuchadnezzar, you are not the Most High. You're just a king. Now, you're a king. In fact, of all the kings, you're the kingest at the moment. But you're not the Most High. The Most High is the King of Heaven. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men, 
and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, you can imagine being saying, saying this to Nebuchadnezzar, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is not in the Bible, but I'll just put it at the end of that chapter. Gulp. Oh, he just said this to Nebuchadnezzar, and this is weird. Okay, that's a principle of biblical interpretation. Every once in a while, you just need to say, that's weird. Look at the judgment on Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to be reduced to being like a wild animal. You are going to be covered with dew. And, and, and you're going to be reduced to irrationality, kicked out not only of your throne, but kicked out of the city as a wild animal. And you go, well, that's extreme. That should have gotten Nebuchadnezzar's attention, right? No. Look at what follows. He did not repent. He did not correct. Verse 28, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, no, notice exactly how this happens. At the end of 12 months, so it's a year later, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' Claws. Whew. Just imagine, you know, take one of the major world leaders on the scene today. The headlines, every single day. You know who I'm talking about. All kinds of world leaders. When you say, well, whatever happened to him? Well, you know, last he was seen out in the woods. And uh, <laughs> he's got hair all over him. I mean, as long as eagle's feathers. And he, he's just wet with dew. He's irrational. He's, he's just, he's, he's crazy. And uh, by the way, oof, the nails, the, the toenails and the fingernails, they're like bird's claws. That's a horrifying thing to me. I wear contact lenses. How's that going to work? I'd be pulling my eyeball out. I mean, it's just gross. You look at this and you go, this is utter degradation. This is, this is the king. This is the king who did indeed build Babylon. This is the king who built the wonder, one of the wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, as a gift to his wife. This is the greatest kingly ruler of his age, and he is now a nut cast out of the city, living like a wild animal, eating grass. Okay, so let's back up a moment. How did Nebuchadnezzar get on the throne in the first place? Okay, so remember... Just underline pagan king, 
So, and I mean pagan king, like he sent his armies against God's people, defeated them, and took the elite into captivity. So when you hear the name Nebuchadnezzar, you are hearing a name that was intended to bring fear. He was fearsome. So answer this theological question. Just just think about this for a moment. How did Nebuchadnezzar become king? Why is he king? And how did he become the most powerful king of the age? Well, I I think you just need to turn to another passage of Scripture because I'm pretty sure this is going to amaze and confuse you. Look at the prophet Jeremiah chapter 43. The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 43, Jeremiah is speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. For the sake of time, we'll begin at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tapanus. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar and the pavement that is in the entrance to Pharaoh's palace and Tapanus in the sight of the men of Judah. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall light a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt and shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. And he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisk of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. So how did Nebuchadnezzar become king? Historians may offer an explanation, but he didn't know it. He was raised up by God for a purpose not only in world history, but here's what's important for us to understand, in salvation history. He was raised up by God. Nebuchadnezzar thought he did it. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was his own authority. He thought he was standing on his own two feet, and he thought he was standing on the parapet of a wall of a city whose greatness he had built. And when he's singing this little hymn of self-congratulation, God stops him and says, I am the king of kings and lord of lords, not you. How did you get your throne? You pagan king? You think you did this? The prophet Jeremiah says God raised him up. And notice the language that Jeremiah uses. God speaks of Nebuchadnezzar as, quote, my servant. We'll go back to Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar was warned in a succession of dreams. He refused to heed the warning. God's judgment has fallen upon him. He is now the picture of utter degradation. And I mean, in all the scripture, I don't know of a picture of greater degradation than this. And you look at this and you say, politically, it's going to be hard to come back. Seriously, can you imagine you're running for office again? Yeah, I know I had that first term in office, but, you know, I spent those years wandering in the wilderness, covered with dew, long hair, endless nails, eating grass. But I'm over that. And so, you know, elect me again. This is crazy. 
But Nebuchadnezzar was returned to his throne. Nebuchadnezzar was not only returned to his throne, but his kingdom was greater than ever. Nebuchadnezzar was not only returned to his throne, but as he was returned to his throne, he was given a kingdom greater than the one from which he had been removed by God's verdict. Now, how do we know that? Well, just, just, just listen to this. It's the most amazing thing. So follow in the text, Daniel chapter 4. Now look at verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. It's the most amazing profession of faith, or at least of truth, from a man who is still a pagan king. But he has just been humbled beyond words. He declared himself to be basically the king of kings and lord of lords, and that offended the king of kings and lord of lords. God made a point to him, and and by the way, notice the first thing he says about God, because this turns out to be more important than you might think. He says, at the end of the day, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. That means he's not the Most High. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. So this is pointing to, of course, the eternality of God, the fact that God is eternal. His rule is forever. It is beyond even our imagination to know of time without time. But you need to know that Nebuchadnezzar's name means, may God bless my heir. That is, the heir to the throne. So Nebuchadnezzar's name reminds him he's going to die. And Nebuchadnezzar did die just as all we shall as well if the Lord tarries. So from the very beginning, as his reason returns to him, and and, and as things become clear to him, he understands his role, and he understands who God is, and he declares God to be the Most High, and he prays and honors God, for it is he who lives forever. And then notice the language, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom, his rule is an everlasting rule. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? One of the most interesting things you can see in the ancient world, particularly in what's called the ancient Near East, is the throne language. You know, what titles these kings gave to themselves. By the way, King Charles III of the United Kingdom and other dominions, his uh, coronation is upcoming. Now, I, I would talk about this more, and I will in terms of the briefing and other things because I'm, I'm fascinated with it. I'm an Anglophile. I'll just let you know that. And I, 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 just, I love British history, but this is going to be a doozy because Charles is kind of a new age. He represents a new age worldview. And I can just tell you this coronation is not going to be like mothers, which was three hours with dominated by biblical content. It was, it was actually just dominated by statements from Scripture. I don't think we can expect that from Charles III. And he's more or less told us not to expect it. 
But you know what? He still has all the throne titles. And it's going to take somebody a long time just to read all the, all the titles. The king of this, the monarch of this, the ruler over this, the grand governor of this, the grand poobah of that, the, uh, the elected functionary higher than there is no more of some little island somewhere. It's, a, it's an incredibly long series of titles. And that's what kings do, right? That's how kings show their authority. They just keep piling up titles and titles and titles. And, you know, this is what the Bible tells us is the way kings are. And by the way, don't let yourself off the hook. We're all trying to do that in our own little way. We just don't have a throne or an army. But still, we're all trying to do this. We, you know, but the kings, they just do it more extensively than anyone else. And one of the insights from the Bible is how pathetic that looks over against the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because God's rule is not just a big version of Nebuchadnezzar's rule. God's rule knows no end. And, and by the way, Nebuchadnezzar built the wall, he, uh, he built the castle, he built the empire, but you know what? God made every atom and molecule of the cosmos. Nebuchadnezzar's rule, well, it's extensive, so extensive that it's larger than any kingdom and is more powerful than any military the world had ever seen to that day. But you know what? You don't fear it now. No one's feared it for a very long time. And furthermore, every human empire has limits temporal and geographical. God's rule is absolute. It is eternal. It is forever. It is grounded in the fact that he is the creator of all things. And in him, as Scripture says, all things hold together. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to hold together an empire. The one true and living God who created the heavens and the earth is the one who holds the entire cosmos together by the power of his word. Take that, king, <laughs> emperor, president, prime minister, chairman of the communist party, but this is the way human beings are. We, we roll these things up. And, and that's why it's so important to hear exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is saying, because he's correcting the very language that had been used about himself. Notice this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar discovered that his own dominion is not an everlasting dominion. He's just been out eating grass, covered with dew, long hair, curly nails. I'm back to those again. They freak me out. So Nebuchadnezzar has been shown absolutely that he is not in charge. Not only does his dominion not last forever, his dominion is interrupted by the period out in the grass. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Look at verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And then this is the picture of God's sovereignty here. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Theologians have wrestled for as long as Christianity has existed over how rightly to define the sovereignty of God. The bottom line is that what the Bible tells us is that God is a sovereign in that he is the creator king of all things. And his rule is not just in the beginning as he formed out of nothing the entire cosmos and made it as the, 
the, the theater of his glory, but as he rules even now in what in the old English was called the affairs of men. He holds all things together by the strength of his word. He is ruling over all things even now. His will is invincible. His purposes cannot be thwarted. Not only that, it's not only true that no one can stop him from the accomplishment of his purposes, but furthermore, no one can even demand an answer from him as to why he rules as he rules. No one can stay his hand or ask him, what have you done? Now, you know, there's certain kind of testimony that I take more seriously than others, Okay? I'm going to take the testimony of a pagan king who's been out eating grass. And the thing I just want you to see is that one of the greatest testimonies in Scripture to the sovereignty of God comes from a pagan king who came to know that he is not the king of kings and lord of lords, that he has no dominion that is an everlasting dominion, that his kingdom will not endure from generation to generation, Rather, that sovereignty, that majesty, belongs to God. Rather than worrying about an abstract definition of the sovereignty of God, just understand what we have here from Nebuchadnezzar. It means God is God, and we are not, and he will accomplish his purposes, period. And his purposes, given his omnipotence and his omniscience and all the perfections of his glory, his his perfect rule not only cannot be stopped by us, but we have no right to interrogate him and ask him, what have you done? I want you to notice how this passage concludes. So this is after Nicodemus has confessed that God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, his kingdom endures to generation to generation. After he goes on and says, none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Listen to how the text continues. It concludes. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. It's an amazing statement, isn't it? You know, Nebuchadnezzar, and you notice this, he's, he, he's the one receiving this. This is what's so important. Nicodemus really began all this saying, I did this. This is mine. How great am I? Now, I want you to notice a couple of things because they're, they're very interesting. Three times in this passage, it is made clear that the right understanding of God as the infinite sovereign is the right operation of human reason. My reason returned to me. Let me put it another way. It is insanity to think, that God is not God, and it is insanity to think that you are God. So right reason is actually, in other words, the right operation of human rationality is understanding we are mere creatures. He is the creator. Yes, we have earthly kings, and they may do many things, but their rule will not be forever. Their dominion's not an everlasting dominion. God is God. The most important thing to know about the sovereignty of God is that it is revealed to us as absolute and it's also revealed to us as completely consistent with his character as revealed in all of scripture. Another way to put that is that God shows us his sovereignty, not just in 
the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar. God so, shows us his sovereignty in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's attributes of majesty and glory, his omnipotence and his omniscience, they are the divine perfections that know no end. But so true is his redemptive purpose, how it is also a part of his sovereignty, his grace, his mercy, his loving kindness, his justice, his righteousness. It comes down to a simple biblical formula, God is God and therefore we are. Second statement, God is God and therefore we are saved. There's no little God in Scripture. You're just not going to find one. There's no God doing his best in Scripture. You're not going to find him. There's no God doing the best he can under the circumstances in the Bible. You're not going to find him. There is no plan B in the Bible. You're not going to find it. God's purposes are in his eternal decrees, which were his revealed before the foundation of the earth. And at the end of all time, when all things are brought together in God's rule, in the kingdom of Christ, when the great judgment takes place, everything will be right. And it's going to be so right in such a way that God's people are going to look at all of world history and understand it, and every eye will be dry, and every tear will be wiped away. So we're not there yet, right? And we are also just fallible, frail creatures. Thankfully, we're given the word of God, but we do not have a way to explain all of this in such a way we feel like we've got God right down to a definition we can handle. Ask Nebuchadnezzar how that works out. But we have in Scripture all we need to know that it is God's sovereign purpose, even as he rules over the entire cosmos, right down to every atom and molecule and every second or fraction of a second of human experience. His purpose for those who are in Christ is our salvation. And we have divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And to us, that's kind of hard to put together. If God's sovereign, then why am I responsible? Well, the answer is because God said it's so. And so our task is, first of all, to believe. We share the gospel with all persons because that's God's will. And we know that those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved because we know that's God's will. And we know that in the end, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be made up of those who before the creation of the world were known to the Father as his own, and that's bigger than we can understand. So just take the testimony of a pagan king, stop trying to define it and just worshipfully acknowledge it. Because here's the good news. If God is sovereign, if he's sovereign over all things, his sovereignty is unconditional and everything eventually comes into completion by the fulfillment of his will, here's the good news. You can't be lost if you are in Christ. This is the great assurance to Christians. You know how we know we are safe in Christ? It is because it's not just the promise of what we hope for in this life. It is the assurance of that which is to come. And it is because God is so sovereign. That's a hard way to put it, but there's just no other way to put it. God is so sovereign that if we belong to Christ, 
we cannot even unbelong ourselves. I've never put it that way before. But isn't that good news? The biblical worldview is based upon this. God is sovereign or we're done. But I want us to look at the conclusion of this and the very last words of Nebuchadnezzar. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol myself. No, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So as we conclude, may the Lord give his children humility. Can we pray that? If it, doesn't that make sense? We, good Lord, find us humble. I do not want you to read some news report that the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is out to pasture. I'll just say that. I do not, I do not want this picture to be me. And so it's a good thing for us to confess. But at the same time, this confession comes down to the fact that if we are in Christ, we are safe because he is able to keep us from falling. If you're a believer, here's the great good news. You are a part of the eternal saving purpose of God. And it is all of grace from beginning to end. And if you are a part of the saving work of God in Christ and you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and repented of your sins, you can't even unking yourself. For those he has, he keeps. As the Apostle Paul said, I am persuaded he is able to keep us from falling. Isn't that great good news? And, and then I want to share this, this news to you. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, here is the promise that the sovereign, omnipotent king of the universe gives. If you will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. God's provision in his sovereignty was that he sent his son to live a sinless life and then to die on Calvary's cross to bear the burden, to pay the penalty for our sin. God raised him sovereignly on the third day from the dead and, the, and he has now ascended to the Father. And here is the promise that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If we confess with our lips that Jesus Christ is Lord, believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So if you're not a Christian today, Here's the great good news and the promise of a sovereign God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Oh, and by the way, in what may be the strangest sermon you've ever heard, we're going to give the last word to a pagan. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. God, we're so thankful that you've given us the words by which we can know you and the words by which we can know your sovereignty. Father, we praise you for your sovereign rule, and we thank you for the sovereign message of salvation in Jesus Christ. 
Father, we pray that those who are Christians will be confirmed in the faith and those who are not yet believers may be drawn to Christ. Father, we commit this to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 